Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Pilgrim's Progress, a study in the books of First and Second Peter. Here's Pastor Nick. Overseer is a word that comes from the Greek culture and it speaks of, you know, financial oversight and management of responsibilities and, um, and resources. And the church needs both of these roles in their leaders. They need people who can manage well ministries and resources. And they also need people who are examples in godly living, setting examples for others to follow as elders. So Peter says they're not to do this, not to lead in God's church in a heavy-handed way. Paul says a similar thing. I love what he says in 2 Corinthians. He says, we are not here to rule over your faith. Rather, we are here to be helpers of your joy. That's what it means to lead in God's church is to be a helper of people's joy. This is something that Peter learned directly from Jesus himself. You remember Jesus told his disciples, the people in this world who, who lead, who rule over others, they love to lord over people, right? Domineer them. But it shall not be so among you. Rather, among you, the greatest person will be the one who serves the most, who's the greatest servant of others. This is the idea that Peter's been talking about throughout this letter over and over. He's used this word humility, which in Greek is the word hupatasso. It's a, it's a military word which speaks of ranking yourself under somebody. And, and it's the picture that we can draw in our mind, this idea of hupatasso. It's rather than pushing other people down so that you can make yourself up higher, rather it's the idea of getting underneath other people and lifting them up. And that's what leaders in the church are called to do. Lift others up. But again, this isn't limited to leaders in the church. This is for everybody. This is what Peter's been telling us throughout this letter. Get underneath people. Lift them up. Help them to grow and become all that God wants them to be. So whereas leaders shouldn't be heavy-handed, they also shouldn't be passive, right? He says they should exercise oversight. I love what Peter says here in verse 2. He says, don't do it under compulsion nor for shameful gain. See, I know a lot of pastors, and I'll just let you in on a little pastor secret, which you may not know. Sometimes pastors complain about being pastors, right? They'll complain to each other, but sometimes they also just complain to everybody, right? And uh, some pastors complain a lot. And I, I think this is a, it's a really important verse for those guys to read because some of them will be posting online all the time, you know, how hard it is to be a pastor and, and all these things. And, and I'll, I will be the first to admit, there are some unique challenges which come with serving in a church as your job. But I'll tell you this on the other hand. You all know this, who have jobs. There are unique challenges to your job as well. And this is a really important verse for anybody who serves the Lord, particularly those who serve for, for a paycheck, right, who, who are paid by the church, what's called vocational ministry. It means that it's your full-time job. Here's what I would remind those who complain is, hey, nobody's forcing you to do this. Don't, don't do this under compulsion. Rather, if you do this, if you believe that God has called you to do it, well, then you should be feeling that this is the most privileged thing in the world that you get to do, that you get to feed, lead, and protect the people of God in the church, and you get to do that as your full-time job. So Peter says, don't do it under compulsion. Don't act like somebody's forcing you to do this. Peter says in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. See, those who serve as shepherds and overseers in God's church, they have a boss who they will give account to. 
And they should also remember that their reward for their service may not primarily come in this life, but it will come from God. And that's how they should serve. In verse 5, Peter speaks to those who are younger, and he tells them to be subject to their elders, to respect the leadership that God has appointed in the church. But he doesn't stop there. Look at what he says at the end of verse 5. He says, Now to all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This brings us back to where we started. The key strategy of the devil to try to take you down, one of them is pride. Our adversary uses this. It's a trap that he tries to lead us into, and it's deadly. See, pride isn't just a bad habit. It's not just obnoxious character trait. It's something that causes you to set yourself in opposition to God, and it will ultimately destroy you. You know, pride was the first sin, right? It was the sin of the devil. It was the first sin. It's been said that pride was what split heaven and created hell. Pride was what split heaven and created hell. Satan's heart was puffed up with pride and he rebelled against God. So just think about that. That same pride that caused Satan to fall, the same pride that created hell in the first place, the same pride that led Adam and Eve in order, led them to rebel against God and bring so much destruction into the world. It is a trap that you and I are faced with every single day. And if it did that to them, guess what it will do to you? Guess what it will do to me? It will do the exact same thing. Pride is described as, in the Bible as being puffed up, being inflated. You know, the inflammation is deadly. Almost every cause of death that's not accidental has this one thing in common. Inflammation, right? Whether it's cancer, heart disease, stroke, whatever, you can go down the line. Inflammation kills and that's true spiritually as well. Pride is a barrier to spiritual progress because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So how do we avoid this trap of pride? Peter tells us here's how. By clothing yourself in humility. By doing what Peter says next in chapter 6. By humbling yourself before God. Positioning yourself under him. And then making it your goal to lift other people up. See, we follow the greatest person who ever lived in the history of the world. And what made him great? You know what made him great? Is that he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life for others. That is his glory. That is his greatness. And so we are called not to seek our best life now, but to give our lives in service to God and in service to others. Because here's the irony. The more you focus on your own happiness, the more you focus on your own fulfillment, the more empty and miserable you will be. Do you know that that's absolutely true? The more you focus on your own happiness and your own fulfillment, the more miserable and empty you will be. But on the other hand, as Jesus told us, the great irony of life is this. If you will lay down your life and follow him and serve other people in his name, you will be more fulfilled and more happy than you could ever imagine. See, what Peter says in verse 2, it's interesting. He says, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. That's an interesting phrase to come from Peter, isn't it? You know why? Because remember that story I told you just a second ago about the time when Peter fell, when he promised that he was greater than everybody else, and then he fell and he denied Jesus. See, it was in his pride that Peter claimed, even if everyone else falls away, I never will. And then he did. 
See, pride comes before the fall. But after Peter's fall, after Peter denied Jesus, he was sure that he was disqualified from being a leader of God's people ever again. See, he was still a follower of Jesus. We see that he was present at the the day that Jesus resurrected. We see that he hung around still. But Peter, we know that he, he must have felt he was disqualified from leading in the church of God because we see that he went back to his old job. We see Peter again after Jesus' resurrection. He's given up on being a leader amongst God's people, even though that's what Jesus told him he would do. But Peter goes back to fishing. And one morning... In John chapter 21, the final chapter in the Gospel of John, we read about an instance in which after his resurrection, but before his ascension, Jesus appeared to Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus cooked him breakfast and called him over from the water to the shore. You know, on our trip to Israel this summer, we got to see the actual place where that happened. It's a very noticeable place where that took place. And we got to be in that place. It was incredible. And Jesus asked Peter in that place. He called him to the shore. And they ate breakfast together. And Jesus said to him, Simon, son of Jonah. That was Peter's full name. It's kind of like when your mom, you know, calls you by your full name, right? Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Because remember, that's what Peter said. I love you more than anybody else. And Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you. See, what's so interesting about this conversation and what most of us miss when we just read it in English is that Jesus and John, I'm sorry, Jesus and Peter are using two different words for the word love. See, many other languages other than English, we just have one word, right? Like we love pizza, we love our dog, and we love our wife and kids, right? And we love Jesus, right? It's all the same word. But in other languages, they have different words to describe different kinds of love. And so this is the interaction here. It's kind of, it goes totally missed in English because do you love me? Yeah, I love you. But what's really interesting here is that they're using two different words for love. See, in English, again, we only have one word. In Greek, there are four. And so the word that Jesus is using here is the word agape. He's saying, you know, agape love is this ultimate kind of love. It's perfect love. It's divine love. It's unconditional love. And Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, do you love me unconditionally? Peter, do you love me with perfect love? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, I love you. But the word he uses for love is a different word. He uses the word phileo, which is the kind of love that you have for your family members. It's still deep love. It's still meaningful love. But it's not perfect love. It's not the ultimate kind of love. It's not divine love. Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. Pastor Nick has written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, Pastor Nick deals directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities. Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there any actual proof that God exists or that the Bible is trustworthy? Pastor Nick addresses these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or has concerns about these topics. And it is a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Christianity, wherever books are sold or visit nickkady.org. To celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as our gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support Be Set Free Radio at 
bsetfreeradio.com. And now back to today's message. See, Jesus is asking him, Peter, do you love me more than anybody else loves me? Remember, that's what Peter had claimed on that night before he denied Jesus. And Peter's response is, Lord, you know that I love you. But again, he's using a lesser word. And three times they go back and forth. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me with perfect love? And Peter says, Lord, I love you, but not with perfect love. What's going on here? You know, as you read this, you can't help but wonder why. What, why this interaction? Why is it going this way? And why does Jesus repeat it three times? Why? Because Peter denied Jesus three times. He's walking him through a process of reconciliation and restoration. He's healing what Peter broke. And what Jesus is doing, he's restoring him. And each time Peter responds, yes, I love you, but not with agape love, but with, with phileo love. He's essentially saying this, look, I'm not perfect. I realize that now, but I do love you. My love for you isn't what it should be. I recognize that. But to the best of my ability, I do love you deeply. What's happening in this interaction is all about humility and pride. It's all about humility and pride. See, whereas before Peter was prideful, now Peter has been humbled. He's no longer trying to assert that he's better than anybody else. He's showing humility rather than pride. And so every time that Peter responds, Jesus responds back to him. He says, do you love me with perfect love? Peter says, I love you as best I can. And Jesus says, well then, tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Three times he tells him, feed my sheep. So it's so interesting that Peter here would say, you who are elders, feed the sheep. You notice that uh, now we see Peter, he's passing on that message to others. Feed the sheep of God. And God, remember this, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to those who humble themselves before him. The way to avoid the trap of pride is to humble yourself before God and others and like Jesus, take on the posture and the position of a servant, not out of compulsion, not expecting a pat on the back or any kind of compensation, but understanding that your reward will come from God. Okay, the next two we'll move through quickly, but the second trap of the devil that Peter warns us about is a trap of anxiety. He says in verse seven, casting your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. See, one of the devil's traps to get you afraid and worried about stuff in the future, he, he tries to get you worried about stuff that may or may not ever happen. You know, the majority of stuff that I worry about and probably the majority of stuff that you worry about is stuff that will never end up happening at all. But by the time it doesn't happen, You've already wasted all that time, all that energy, worrying about it. This, ha this happened to me just yesterday, right? Like, uh, I found myself worried about something, and it totally stole my attention away from my family and things that I should have been paying attention to. It robbed me of something that I can't get back. It was a trap of the devil. It, it made me ineffective. The other thing I found is this. Even if the worst case scenario does happen, right? The thing that you fear does happen. You know what happens? God will give you the grace to walk through that. And it's usually never as bad as you anticipated it being. And so he says, therefore, cast your anxieties upon him for he cares for you. That word cast, it means to throw something, right? To chuck it with all of your strength as far as you can. I love that it doesn't say lay it at his feet. You know why? Because even after you lay it at his feet, you might pick it up. It doesn't say hand it over to him because as you hand it, you might hold on to it, right? And not 
relinquish your grip on it even when it's in his hands. But instead it says, cast it out of your hands, throw it upon him because he cares for you. Treat it like a hot potato. You've got to get rid of that thing. You throw it at him. Why? Because he cares for you. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. It's a 2,000-year-old pun, and it still works here in English. See, here's the thing. You can only do so much. There's so much in this life that is out of your control. And anxiety can be crippling. It's a, it's a trap. It paralyzes you. It eats up your time. It eats up your energy. It distracts you from things that actually matter. You see, it's a trap, and we fall right into it. Jesus told us this. Who among you can add even an hour to your life by worrying? See, worrying actually accomplishes nothing. It ruins your life and renders you ineffective. And that is exactly what the enemy of our souls wants. Instead, what Jesus tells us to do is what Peter told us to do. With the things that are outside of your control, cast them upon God because he is in control and he cares about you. You can pour out your heart to him in prayer and leave those anxieties to him. But notice what he says in verse 8. He says, be sober-minded, resist the devil, be watchful. Well, that's interesting, right? It's almost like, is he saying the opposite of what he said in verse 7? In verse 7, he's like, let go and let God. In verse 8, he's like, but be watchful and fight. If the answer is, what is it? Is it the one or is it the other? Of course, the answer is both. See, we're to entrust our circumstances fully unto God, and then we are to be actively involved. So trust your finances to God and show up for work on time tomorrow morning. You trust God to protect you from the evil one, and you resist him with all of your might. See, we trust God fully, and we put in full effort. It's not one or the other. It's both. The final trap that Peter warns us about is the trap of prosperity. In verse 10, he says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to eternal glory in Christ will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. Peter's telling these people, these trials you're facing, they're not going to last forever. There will come a day when this too will pass. Now, on the one hand, Peter might be saying that, hey, life is short relative to eternity. Therefore, look forward to the glory that will be revealed to you in heaven. That's true. But there, it's also possible that what he's saying here is this. These trials will not last forever. For most of you, there will come a time when these trials will end. And when these trials end, you will need God's grace to restore you, to rebuild you, to strengthen you, and to establish you. One of the biggest traps that the enemy tries to lure us into is the trap of complacency. And complacency is often tied to prosperity. I remember there was a time in our lives where for several years in a row, we were in crisis mode, right? There's one crisis after another. And what that does to you in your life is it keeps you in a place of dependence upon God. It keeps you in prayer every night, humble and, and seeking God. But when those things are over, when life gets comfortable again, it's really easy to sink into complacency. It's been said this, that it's been said, times of blessing have destroyed people whom persecution couldn't touch. You're never more vulnerable than you are during a time of victory and prosperity. We see that in the life of David. When he's being chased by Saul, when he's running for his life, those are the times when he's writing psalms and seeking the Lord, when he's in a good place spiritually. But it's later on in his life, when he's in the palace, when he's in comfort, when he's in peace, that's when he ends up going off the rails and walking away from God and doing terrible things. It's like professional athletes from their contract year. A lot of times they'll play their heart out. Then they'll get that huge contract and then they show up for 
training camp, you know, the next year and they're 30 pounds overweight and they don't even have the fire to play anymore. That's what happens to us a lot of times as well. One of Satan's greatest traps is the trap of prosperity and complacency. So what can we do? He tells us we lean in to the grace of God. We lean in to the grace of God. Peter calls him the God of all grace. Guys, do you know that grace is more than just forgiveness of your sins? Grace is God's supply for whatever you need. It's God's supply for whatever you need in that instance or in that moment. Sometimes you need the grace to keep going. Sometimes you need the grace, the strength to do what God's calling you to do or to face something. Grace is God's supply, his provision for whatever your need is practically. You know, in Jesus, we get to experience God's saving grace, right? The gift of salvation and justification because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But we need God's grace every moment of every day, right? We need God's grace for everything that we face in this life and throughout the entirety of our lives. It's God's provision, God's strength, God's ability for whatever you need. And thankfully for us, he is the God of all grace. Verse 11, Peter takes a praise break and he's like, you know what, just thinking about God's grace, I just want to say this, to him be the dominion and the power forever and ever. In verse 12, in his kind of wrapping things up, his final greetings, he says this. He mentions Silvanus in verse 12. Silvanus is by his side. Apparently, Silvanus was probably the scribe who was writing this letter as Peter spoke it or dictated it out loud. Now, that's interesting. Silvanus is also called Silas. It's two ways to say the same name. He's mentioned in the book of Acts. He was a companion of the apostle Paul on Paul's second missionary journey. And we also know that he was Paul's scribe when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. And so it's interesting now that Silvanus or Silas is now with Peter in Rome. It's especially interesting in light of the fact that many people believe that this letter was written in the wake of the death of Paul the Apostle, the execution of Paul in Rome. And so Peter is writing in the wake of Paul's death and he's telling all the people he's writing to, Silvanus, Silas, Paul's bro, right, his companion in ministry, he's here with me together. He says in verse 13, She who is at Babylon, who is also chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. She who is at Babylon, this is a euphemism which speaks of the church in Rome. See, Peter is comparing the believers in Rome to the Jews who were in exile in Babylon. Babylon has a lot of prophetic significance in the Bible. In the Bible, by the way, Babylon isn't just a city. Babylon is almost like an idea. It's an attitude. It's a posture of being opposed to God. And Peter is applying these believers in Rome. He's applying that to these people in Rome. And Rome will later be talked about as Babylon in the book of Revelation as well. The Mark that he refers to as his son, most likely not his biological son, although we do know that Peter was married, he had a wife. Most likely, though, the Mark he's talking about here is someone who was a leader in the early church called John Mark, who went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. He was actually the kind of the, the root of some strife between Paul and Barnabas. And he's also the person who was believed to be the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark is considered to be Peter's account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's called Mark because it was written down by Mark and the early church attributed the writing of it to him. This is probably the Mark that we're talking about here. After all these years, still hanging out with Peter. So Peter concludes this letter by saying this, Peace to all of you who are in Christ. 
The truth is, apart from Christ, it is impossible to know true and lasting peace. Because Jesus gave up his peace. He gave up the tranquility and the peace of heaven to come to us and suffer the violence of being rejected and crucified to atone for our sins so that we could have peace with God. That's the hope of the gospel, the promise, the good news. And my prayer for you as we finish this great letter is that whatever you are facing today, that you would experience overwhelming peace, even in the midst of it, the peace that comes from the hope of the gospel, the peace of God, not only for what will come, but the peace of God here and now today because of who Jesus is and what he is doing, even in the midst of your trials. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are a God who reigns even over our difficult times. Lord, you are a God who is in control and in charge, and we're thankful that we can entrust all of our lives to you. We're thankful, Lord, that we can cast our cares upon you because you care for us. So Lord, I pray for everyone here today. I'm sure there are some of us who've come into this place this morning with a lot of cares weighing down our heart. Lord, would you help us to cast those upon you? because you care for us. Help us to have that true sense, not just head knowledge, but the feeling and knowledge in our minds and our hearts that you do indeed care for us. And Lord, help us to pursue you and take that humble attitude of Jesus, the attitude that leads to ultimate happiness and fulfillment. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.